Welcome. You are listening to the Stanford University podcast of The LinkedIn Story, Becoming the Go-To in a Crowded Market. My name is Teresa Lina Stevens, and I will be your host as I interview LinkedIn co-founder Constantine Gittica in front of a live audience of students and members of the Silicon Valley community. This event took place on campus on March 1st, 2011, as part of Entrepreneurship Week at Stanford. In addition to co-founding LinkedIn, my esteemed guest, Constantine Gurica, served as the company's first vice president of marketing, taking the company from launch to its first six million members and profitability. A Stanford graduate, he now serves on the boards of several startups and continues to advise LinkedIn on the company's international activities. I am with the Stanford Technology Ventures Program in the School of Engineering. I am also founder and president of Lina Group, Inc., a strategic marketing consulting firm focused on helping software, IT solutions, and IT services organizations differentiate in crowded markets. Now please join us as we begin the program. I would like to introduce our esteemed guest, Constantine Gurica. And I probably just mutilated that, huh? Try, I, I asked him before, do you want me to give the German pronunciation or the... <laughs> so, um, I, I think what we'll do, I think a lot of you know Constantine's background from, um, you know, learning about the event. But what, what might be nice is if you, as we talk, if you let some of your background come out, because mm -hmm. I think that's a much more interesting. He has a really fascinating background and a very fascinating way in which he's put his very um, diverse and mixed background to use. And then you've also helped found and run a couple of other ventures, too. So, okay. So, Constantine... What about, um, let's just start off, give us a two-minute overview. Uh, you know, a lot of people know LinkedIn only as a dominant force in net, uh, social media uh, for professionals, but give us a couple of minutes, just two minutes on the sort of the background story, okay, how do you, things got going. Do you going. want the official one in two minutes? No, no, or the no, real we one? don't want the official one. <laughs> we want the dirt. We want the, the official scoop. was about no, someone no. looked for a flash designer and couldn't find them and all that, but that was kind of made no, up for the no. press and... It never stuck because none of us really like to make up things, but we tried it for a little bit. But real story was, and it's kind of um, for entrepreneurs, I think it's so important, your, your contacts. I mean, obviously, that's what LinkedIn is about, but that's kind of how LinkedIn started. One of my friends from Stanford, um, I was speaking, this is in 96, on an avatar conference, and she said, you know, my friend Reid Hoffman is going to be on this panel at this avatar conference. We're both working kind of for competitors. We're on the panel together. And that's, that's how I met Reed, who is sort of, there's five of us who started the company. He's kind of the super co-founder because he put in, you know, his own money as well. Um, so, so that's kind of like, you know, basically this one person kind of set this thing in motion um, there in terms of building the core of the team. And then, um, you know, this avatar thing really didn't work out well in 96. 3D on the web <laughs> was not the right time. And there's no prize for being early, by the way, as an entrepreneur. Um, it's pretty painful. And, um, but there was a company called GeoCities that some of you may remember, and I always wondered, like, why did I never create a GeoCities page? Because I knew the two founders, and I was trying out lots of services. But I was in the marketing side, and I felt like I couldn't create a bad page for myself. Like, it, it, I would just create something that wouldn't look good, and then it would be bad for my brand as a marketing professional, of all things. Um, but when I got married, there was a site called The Wedding Channel. And it was, it was wonderful <laughs> to me as a business person. It was like PowerPoint. You just had to answer questions and pick a template, and it created a gorgeous site. So I felt like something like that we need for, for professionals. So at the core, that's sort of what the, the profile is about. And then the other inspiration was back in 96 was there was a, the first um, people directories came on the web, 411.com, which Yahoo bought, um, came out. And it was... Um, you know, white pages. And it felt to me, I was using the internet before the web came about, and it felt to me the really interesting thing isn't the web pages, it's the hyperlinks between them. And so when you have white pages, what's really interesting is how do people know each other and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so these things really came together. So it's a little more complicated than the two-minute version, but it's the real one, and I'm sticking, sticking <laughs> with it. Well, you also talked about, you know, we, we got together a couple of weeks ago and we're talking about this, and you were saying how... Um, you know, you kind of had something you wanted to accomplish. You got together with Reed, and maybe you can give a quick story on how you guys uh, got to know each other and how long you knew each other before you actually started working together. And then how some of the other founders came in with other sort of, you know, all the founding team had different, everybody had a different agenda. Um, but it, 
that's what made it work. It yeah, there's like. different experiences. I guess the other thing I have as a tip for entrepreneurs is, I mean, the sort of stereotypical thing is that you have, um, you know, you have you wake and you have this sh idea in the shower and you got to scribble uh -huh. down and it's the idea and you can't tell it to other people because they will uh -huh. steal it. It's the br most brilliant thing. You know, I mean, we didn't invent six degrees of separation. You know, Kevin Bacon did it a long time ago. So, and in fact, there were several business networking sites, you know, when we started. So, so Reed and I talked about it after that panel about this initial concept. In fact, I got a domain called PeopleMap, um, which I really liked um, for, for the reasons I described with the white pages. And then during the dot-com days, um, someone wanted really to buy it. And I wasn't sure, is it ever going to happen or not? And I had other business ideas and different domains, and so I just sold it. Of course, then later when we were ready to work on it, it's like, oh, no, we need a different domain. And we're trying to get uh, well-connected. Uh, that was sort of our next idea for a domain name. But it was some networking, like a Cisco networking type dealer had that domain. And we, we said we're not going to pay more than $5,000. So we couldn't convince him. Reed had all kinds of schemes to, you know, to get the, get the domain for, from him, but he didn't want to sell it. So we had to come up with some name. And LinkedIn wasn't taken. So, so in hindsight, which name do you like better? I still like Well Connected and okay, people Okay, map. let's see a show of hands. How many like the name Well Connected better? No. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> one person, one person. It is so. longer, I admit, but it had, had a certain ring to it. Um, but, but I think with brands, it's the important thing is it's what you fill it with, and people just get used to it. Right. Um, um, so, so I think Well Connect could have been really good, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you launched this company. You, you know, you're off and running. I, you told me the first thing you guys did was start inviting your own friends mm -hmm. to join. Uh, didn't Reed said at one point, if it fails, at least he's got a tool for managing his contacts? Well, so. that was, we, you know, so one thing we did is we, you know, we, we talked years about it. Now, in between, like, he started uh, a, a site called relationships.com, and then he went to PayPal, and so sometimes I didn't see him for a while because he got very busy. <laughs> they had an IPO and all that good stuff. Um, but we always kept in touch and kind of critiqued each other's ideas. And for a while, we were meeting at the um, Peninsula Fountain Creamery in Palo Alto until we realized we're eating way too much, you know, milkshakes <laughs> and other things. So then we started walking the dish um, um, or the Wonder Lake Park in, in Woodside and would basically sort of take one idea at a time. And, um, you know, and it was kind of the first idea we talked about. We went through all these other ideas, but we kept coming back to it. And one thing, you know, you hear a lot at Stanford is just follow your passions. And so we said, well, I'm not sure if this is the best idea, but, but we keep coming back to it. So let's, let's get at our system and do it. And one of the nice things, since Reed had, um, you know, been part of the PayPal IPO and had some money, he said, you know, we know it'll be useful for us. We don't know how many people want to use it. But uh, we'll just, you know, I'll pay for the service to be running, and that way we have this much better address book than anybody else, and that'll be useful for our career, even if not a lot of people use it. So, so that's kind of how it started yeah. and convinced us, Let, let's go do it. And, and um, so it's a very gradual process often, you know, that, that can uh -huh. take, um, so this was like 96 or 97, I forgot, you know, it was like five years in the making to even start it and to really actually designing some pages and stuff. So that's another way in which it differs from sort of the fairy tale of a startup, right? You have this big aha in the shower, and you get your friends together, and suddenly you're building a business um, versus having something sort of um, percolate over time with, with somebody else. So you had this idea. You launched this site. Um, then what? Did you have this grand vision? I mean, back then, would you have anticipated, maybe fantasized, but would you have anticipated it is what it is now? Or did you kind of feel your way as you went along? No, I, I've been doing a number of startups, and so did Reed, and some more successful than others. A lot of them oh. not so successful. So, so you kind of like, you don't want to jinx it by you know, thinking about all the future and how great it could be. But I, I would say, you know, all five of us on the team had a pretty deep conviction that this is really important in business, that trust, you know, and the relationships, because we just see this is how most business happens, whether you hire people, whether you access information, whether you get clients, whether you do market research. So, so we knew it was essential. And so if it, if it worked and if we felt the biggest problem was would professionals really go and you know create a profile and connect with their friends. So that was sort of a big unknown because that's not something professionals were doing before. But if they did it, then we felt for sure they will take advantage of it and it'll be valuable and it can be very profitable. So, mm -hmm. And it's something that cuts across. You know, I'm from Germany. I lived in, in Japan for a while. 
Um, Reed's a very international guy as well, so uh, one of the co-founders from France. So we knew it was across industries, across regions. It's really sort of that trust and the, the contacts and relationships matter you know, everywhere. Just whoever's from China knows how important it is there or in Japan or the Middle East. It's very, very, very human, universal principle. And the basic thing was we thought, like, well, it really works if we can make it more efficient online without breaking why it works offline. It's sort of like you add the efficiency of online, of searching, but you have to make sure you don't break why it works offline. In the, so if you can do those two things, then um, it would be great. But we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, like, mm -hmm. but we just knew it was, it was something very important. That's why we wanted to do it. And so you were the head of marketing. Uh, you have this site you've just that built. That was the only job that was left <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Who wants marketing? <laughs> um, so you, how did you get started? What were some of the first things you thought about doing? Um, you, know, you had a million choices in front of you as to what you could be spending your time on. You were a marketing department of one, correct? Exactly, yeah. yes. Well, actually, so. all the way for four years, to the first six million users, I was the whole marketing department there were no other people in marketing. So, um, and, and partly we felt that we wanted to make sure, because if you're going to scale up and get lots of users, unless your users do the marketing for you, it would just be way too expensive. Especially since we felt, even though we're creating a lot of value, that value comes as the network grows. Mm -hmm. So it's not one of these startups where you can start charging right away. So you need to kind of survive, um, you know, get to your first million users without having revenue. And you know that's sort of a patience. Uh, how many, how much time do VCs let you do it, and how much money they let you spend? And one of the great things been, you know, as the VP marketing, usually with the startups, I was the one who spent you know thirty to forty percent of the VC's money, and that can be not so good at board meetings. <laughs> um, in this case, you know, I was very proud because we really didn't spend any money, and um, and we really tried to do that very consciously. So. So what we focused on is really the viral marketing piece, um, which was still fairly new you know, at that time, and, and really doing lots of really little things that, mm -hmm. that all added up. And lots of, you know, I have an engineering background, so I think that helped um, you know, really thinking about it in a quantitative way. And I think the new marketing is really much more quantitative. It started with direct marketing, uh, you know, when people were sending out those you know, mail pieces. And um, because now if you can track it, you can improve it, it becomes much more of a science than you know, the vision of the, the grand marketeer who has this brilliant flash of inspiration for a commercial and you know, the, the artsy team goes at it and they make a great Super Bowl and then the phones ring off the hook. I think uh, you know, on the web it becomes you know, it's sort of the iteration and the little improvements um, make, a, make a big difference. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the main thing really at the beginning was the viral marketing and then we, we needed to, if that if that basically, it started with us inviting our friends. And basically, if they didn't sign up, I would call them up and say, hey, how come you're not signing up? And either I would learn why they're not signing up, which was great product feedback, or I got them to sign up. And then I would wait, and I would run the reports. And if they didn't invite any of their friends, I would call them again. and said, how come you're not inviting your friends? This is not going to be useful unless you invite your friends. And either they get it or they didn't. And you know, if they didn't get it, again, it was useful product feedback. If they did get it, then they did invite their friends. And so, but then I couldn't call their friends anymore. <laughs> that didn't really work. So by that, but by that time, we had to basically take that product feedback and iterate very rapidly. But basically, the whole network was spreading of the five co-founders and the people who we invited, which was, you know, I have some people I know in Germany, but still very Silicon Valley-centric. So we're inviting people in Silicon Valley. And we were thinking, like, this is going to take a long time until we get to Chicago and New York and Miami and Pakistan and Australia. Um, and so we basically said, we need to you know, do some PR. So basically, I got the list of the 20 largest news, daily newspapers in the US and basically said, I want a story in each of those 20 papers. So we basically start a little viral wave in Chicago, one in Atlanta, one in Philadelphia. And, um, and that's kind of how we got that going. So, so LinkedIn started through these, these PR efforts, didn't really get us a lot of members, but it would get us you know, like 1,000 or 2,000 in these places. But the important thing is, each of these members then, the, the virality had these different starting points. Like when you, when you seed, you can just wait for a tree to put down the saplings and spread, or you can just plant a few different things. So, because we were afraid that once it started to look like we were successful, someone in Chicago with lots of connections in the management consulting industry would start you know, a LinkedIn for consultants, and someone in New York would start one for finance people, and someone in LA would start one for Hollywood. And, and, and since they had their network there, 
by the time we got there, it would be too late because professionals were already fractured on another network. Well, one of the things I noticed in the early days, I started, before I joined, my invitations were coming from IT people or people in the IT and high tech. Not even necessarily purely Silicon Valley, but, you know, I guess Silicon Valley was sort of the kernel. And then it went to the technology or IT people, and then those people started inviting people sort of in other functional areas. But I always thought, oh, what a brilliant marketing strategy. They get the, the IT people who are tech savvy, who are comfortable with it, and they invite their network. But I guess that would just sort of happen. It was just who we knew. And then in the beginning, a couple um, bloggers you know, posted something. And so one big blogger in Japan, Joey Ito, blogged, and he's quite influential. So we got, all of a sudden, Japan was a, a big country. Uh-huh. And so we got some seeds kind of through bloggers or, you know, who knows, people who were reading the U.S. media. And it was really fascinating to watch. I like in LinkedIn, not so much like a lot of software, it feels like a machine. You know, you you have rules and you input and output. But I think LinkedIn, I feel a lot more like gardening because you, you put these seeds things and they grow. And and since you're not spending money to acquire users, you never know where is it growing. It's almost you come into the office and it's like, okay, where are we growing today? Because your users are your marketing department. And the great thing is they're free. The bad thing is you have no way of controlling them. They're going to invite whatever. If they want to invite people in Israel, that's where you grow that week or that month. And the pattern was, let's see, Japan was really big in the beginning. Then I think it was Finland and Israel, and Iceland, and Brazil, and Netherlands, and India, and, you know, it's like a really weird pattern. Like, I don't know <laughs> how these things are really connected, but, but that's kind of, you go into your garden, and you see different things sprout out, and it's, it's kind of fun. But you have to get, let go of sort of the, the marketing urge to control, and here's where I spend the money, and I measure my return of investments. You kind of have to go with what the users are, but I still don't know really what the pattern, I, I don't understand it. But it sounds like getting to those key influencers was crucial because they, you know, you sort of had little explosions wherever you had an influencer. I think so. I do know in Iceland, I think I'm actually responsible for the early explosion of LinkedIn in Iceland because I know this guy, he is a very young guy, very accomplished entrepreneur, um, and just very connected to music and fashion and all kinds of things. And I, I noticed after I invited him, uh-huh. Iceland started to blow up. And it's kind of a small country where people, you know, I mean, I think they only have like six last names in Iceland or something. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, it, it can, they're very connected there. And I think that's kind of what's true a little bit, like in Israel, again, very tight-knit kind of smaller community. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and so, so I think there's some pattern there um, where, where, where it spreads more quickly there. So did you find, um, you know, so you, you had your vision of what you wanted to accomplish. You launched it. Um, you had a point of view around how people needed to be networking and leveraging their networks and using a tool to do that. You started igniting the marketplace with these pockets of influencers and, and networks. But you also had a challenge in that you were really having to change people's behavior because this was a brand new thing at the time, doing anything like that, you know, connecting in that manner, especially professionally. So what, how did you go about you know, encouraging that or mm-hmm. nurturing that in any way? Yeah, I mean, people were doing a few things. There was a company called Plaxo. People still remember Plaxo. And you know they had lots of users, and it took us six months to get to our first 40,000 users. That's kind of when we launched you know, publicly. We announced our funding and so forth. And uh, you know, Friendster was adding, I think, 40,000 a day. So when I was, it was really tough. You know, I remember like, the launch, Reed and I were on the phone with the media, and you know, they the said, like, why would, you know, we can see you know, Friendster 20-somethings doing it for fun and, and so forth and for dating, but professionals, they don't have time, it's, you know, it's not going to be useful, and so, so why would they do it? And, and if they do do it, then Friendster, who's signing up, you know, had 4 million users at that time, they'll just add a tab called Professional Profile, and you fill it out, and, and then you're dead, so tell me again why I should cover you. And, and then they asked about the business model, and of course, in 2003, the basically only reporters who were left were all the ones that thought the dot-com was a bunch of hooey because all the people who were excited about the dot-com got laid off when the magazines. So, so these are the, the real cranky people. And they said, you know what? Your business model is going to be subscriptions, like a premium membership. Uh, you know, do you know the Wall Street Journal just, they tried it for two years and they just canceled it because people wouldn't pay for the Wall Street Journal online. 
And like, yeah, but I think ours is more valuable. <laughs> but uh, you know, they didn't quite buy that. But uh-huh. uh, but they kind of smirked. Actually, they thought the greatest thing were all these. There were several startups that are going after the enterprise side to to sell it to salespeople. There's a company called Spoke, another called called Visible Path, and and they thought that was you know much more solid business model than having all these free users and then um, kind of a premium version. Uh-huh. But um, but, you know, I'm glad we were right. <laughs> well, you know, I think that brings up a great point, though. Um, focus worked in your favor uh, in that case. So tell me, you know, how that was. What, why do you think that that was a valuable thing in your case versus well, the Well, we broader... definitely stayed focused on the professional. I mean, that's what, just what we're passionate about, um, you know, and there are sort of social options. It was always kind of a little bit, you look at it, and when we launched, it was kind of like, oh, it's like a friendster for business. And then two years later, we were like the MySpace for business. Another three years later, we were like the Facebook for business. And I don't know, pretty soon we'll be like the Twitter for business or the Foursquare for business or some other thing. So the nice thing is we're always there. Um, but these other kind of more social, fun, entertaining services just grow a lot faster. So the acquisition of, I mean, if you think about like what services are viral, you know, among 40-year-old men, it's just not the demographic. They're busy working and, 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 if, and, and, and I mean, imagine the service of YouTube. I mean, I was so jealous, like how easy is it to make YouTube viral? You have like, these fun videos that people want to share versus a LinkedIn invitation. The first thing is you have to input your resume. I mean, that's like root canal for most professionals. And, <laughs> and you don't get any benefit till three years later when a recruiter calls you. So... So, you know, I feel pretty proud that we got that demographic. And the good thing is that demographic is as slow-moving as they are for us. They're also not that open to trying new things. <laughs> so as long as we don't screw it up, I think they'll, they'll stick with us. Uh-huh. So tell us more about some of those tougher moments, some of those, uh, you know, times when you weren't sure if you'd make payroll or, you know, you were wondering, okay, how are we going to stick it out mm-hmm. uh, with the, you know, especially as you watch some of these other sites zoom past you like that? Yeah, well, in the beginning, the biggest problem was the growth, where we just, you know, it took us a lot longer than Friendster to get to critical mass, which means, you know, everything in the business plan would, would need to come later, and we need to raise, raise more financing. Um, so, so that was, and, and it just didn't make sense. We said, like, let's not try to really earn revenue because it's not useful. I have this, um, a friend of mine is a, a lawyer in Las Vegas and you know, he says, yeah, I was trying your service and it's not useful. Um, I was looking for a paralegal in Las Vegas with trademark experience. You know, three simple things. It's not that outrageous to, you know, to ask for that paralegal, trademark experience, Las Vegas. But he came up with one result or zero result or two, but you know, it just like, wasn't what it was good. So that was when we had 40,000 users. So we knew kind of we had to get to a million. So I think that was, uh, and that just took longer. So, so that, was, that was pretty rough. And then um, our competitors were just technologically much more advanced than us. You know, they had product, they had more money, um, they had many more features than we did. So that was kind of rough. And then I think was when we started charging, we basically, because we were kind of delayed, we raised the Series B without a single dollar of revenue. We knew that, you know, a Series C, we'd have to show some serious revenue or it would be a big down round, which for founders is never good because you basically get washed out. And so, and, and it always took us a while to develop things because we had built on kind of an older platform and our users were expecting things to not be too buggy and, they expected sort of more conservative privacy settings and things like that. So, um, so it was, you know, it took us a while. We're basically like, well, this revenue model's got to work. <laughs> Otherwise, we're in big trouble. And now we felt pretty confident that it would work because we told people, you know, we heard from recruiters and others how valuable it was to them. And so, so we felt, you know, pretty, pretty sure. But, but we knew there wasn't really going to be another chance or it would be very painful. Uh-huh. So, um, how did you, how did you um, figure out how you were going to prioritize as, as uh, can you guys hear me in the back of the room okay? Okay. How you were going to prioritize product features as, um, as you went along, as the user base started growing and you started, I'm sure, getting inundated by suggestions and requests. And how did you figure out what you were going to prioritize mm-hmm. or how you were going to prioritize, especially since you didn't have the huge funding that some of the others had? Yeah. Um, and it begins very simple. Everything that drives growth <laughs> and nothing else was a priority. Um, you know, as long, because... 
again, we didn't think the thing would be really useful till we got to a million members. So sort of spending effort on that didn't seem worthwhile. And so, you know, one of the things we did, for example, in, you know, in, the, in the viral marketing, I mean, we tried lots of different texts, but one of the things you may remember since you were an early user was when you got an invitation, it didn't say, click here to join LinkedIn. It said, um, you know, kind of join Constantine's network and here's what his network is. So it was much more of a personal relationship because your decision, if we know each other and we only encourage people to invite people they know and trust, that was also something that kind of constrained us a little bit, but we felt was important for the quality of the network, which ultimately you don't get quantity without quality. And so, so you would say, yes, I know Constantine, I'm part of his network, I know his network is valuable, so I'll accept. Much easier decision than, do you want to join LinkedIn? Well, what is LinkedIn, you know, and so forth. So it really helped by positioning it as a personal thing and an interaction between the two of us that made people accept it much more. Um, now the problem was, is they signed up for Constantine's network. They didn't sign up for LinkedIn, so they barely remembered what LinkedIn was. Wow. Um, so we had to figure out ways to reactivate people. So the other thing I did besides the PR and the viral marketing was kind of email campaigns to our existing user base to say, you know, you, you join so-and-so's network. That's actually a lot more that you can do and try these things and, and fill out this information in your profile and so forth. And, but our demographic, again, very sensitive. They didn't really want to get email newsletters from this site that they you know, hadn't really chosen to sign up for. It was someone invited. They didn't want to say no. Um, so you have to be very careful that um, you don't annoy people because a bad reputation can really kill you. And that's one of the things we struggle a little bit, even a bad reputation of a competitor because Plaxo was getting a kind of a bad mm -hmm. reputation yeah. for being too spammy. And a lot of people just said, well, you're kind of like Plaxo, so I'm not going to sign up for that. Right. So it hurt them pretty badly, but it almost killed us. So we always made sure, like, what can we do so people know we're not like Plaxo? And we had a competitor who came after us out of um, Hollywood called Zero Degrees. And they came a little after us, but they got very aggressive. And they also were very focused on membership. But what they did, they were so aggressive that it sort of sent invitations without people fully realizing that it was sending invitations to the whole address book. So, so they kind of overstepped that virality. You, you, if you push it too far, especially in this demographic, uh, people really started hating them. And I think that's why they never... Um, went anywhere because um, they got kind of a bad reputation. Mm -hmm. well, now looking back, what are, what are some things you would say were mistakes you made or things you had done differently or some of the dumbest things you mm -hmm. did? I'm sure you have yeah. a long list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, we all do, right? Looking back. In those well, yeah, looking situations. back, it's always easy. Yeah. But, but the thing that, you know, because you work so hard and, uh, and, and you end up, Later, you see, like, I, we spent all this effort on this thing that wasn't an issue <laughs> at all. So, like, when we started, because we could see how valuable this was going to be, being able to tap into my contacts' contacts. Um, and so we were afraid that everybody is just going to connect to five people that they know and just going to ask, hammer those people for introduction requests because it is so valuable. And, and the people basically wouldn't want to put their contacts in, but they would just keep searching and, and requesting introductions. And so we spent all these things about the terms of an agreement and, yeah, to call the free rider syndrome. And, you know, really ever since, the opposite has happened. You know, even recruiters who we thought would never really want to share their, their Rolodex and LinkedIn, you know, they're, like, connecting with all their, you know, clients and whatever. And, but a lot... A lot of users don't really use use it. You know, they just use it to kind of stay in touch with people, but they're not tapping into their second degree. They may do like a name search, but they don't look for a certain kind of person, which we thought, well, that's the whole point of it, you know. So, so you're surprised, and you spend all these energies into something that doesn't really happen. And, for example, we, we had a little search function at the beginning, and, um, but it had no name field in it. It's like, why would you, you know, search for a name of someone you already know? That's, that's you know, that's not useful. Um, but you want to find a certain kind of, I, I had actually before LinkedIn, in order to kind of pay the bills, I did some consulting, and we did a message hierarchy exercise, and so the last step was message testing, and we needed to, basically our target market were CFOs at electronics companies between 50 million and 500 million revenue. And it was like, not so easy. Like, I knew some CFOs, I knew some people in the electronics industry, but again, three simple criteria makes it pretty hard. But it, I knew that 
you know, if I have 200 contacts, all of my contacts have 200 contacts, the chances that I'd find that person is 200 times in my second degree than is my first degree. So, so we basically said, like, that's the kinds of thing people want to search for. So you can put CFO, industry, company size, those things. And, you know, the first feedback we got from users was like, Duh, where do I put the names of the people that I'm searching for? They're like, why are you looking for them? You know, you already know them. Just invite them. They're like, no, I don't want to invite them. Just if they're already on the network, I'll connect with them. But I don't feel comfortable inviting them. So I was like, okay, fine. We'll put a name field in. And then we saw people like, you know, doing like 100 searches for names one after the other. And we're like, wow, <laughs> you know, they're really trying to, you know, they're basically going through the whole address book, entering the name one by one. Then we said, well, we can probably do something better than that. It, we can simply build a little tool that downloads into Outlook that compares all, that does those hundred searches for you automatically in you know a few seconds, and and you know that was really helpful. But that's not something we had envisioned, uh -huh. um, and and we just marked everybody so you'd know: is this person on LinkedIn? Yes, no. Uh -huh. I mean, that was not an obvious decision whether you should do it because if a member just if we basically make it easier for members to only invite other members, we don't grow, right? You want people to invite people who are not members. Um, but we figured if they invite other members, that brings them back to the site. Maybe they invite some other members, and maybe that person invites somebody who didn't. Right. So just by using it to reactivate that, that it's better Putting to show people so they're comfortable. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, and let the users do what they want to do, yeah. and, then, and then later, you know, if they're convinced of the value, then they'll want to invite all these people that, Why? by that time, they're already uploaded, so it's very easy then. To you invite. let users do what they want to do? <laughs> <laughs> the thought of it. <laughs> so, um, so what advice do you have? I know you, you're an advisor to one of the one of our courses, in fact. Mm -hmm. And um, what advice do you have for people in the audience who are either running? How many of you are in marketing, by the way? Anybody? Do we have a few? Fair number. And um, how many of you are founders? Oh, lots. <laughs> okay. How many of you are part of a startup in some form or fashion, but not the founder? Okay. It's a little one-person startup. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, so what advice do you have for this crowd here? Mm -hmm. And those who are listening, we'll have this on a podcast as well. I think it's important that why we went, you know, we kind of went through all these different ideas, and, and it's sort of like you never know what's going to succeed. So, but if it's something where you really like the team that you're working with, you sort of assume failure of your startup and look at was it still a good investment of your time. And you know, if you liked your team and all five of us still like each other at LinkedIn, um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a fun thing to work with people that you like and that you can learn from and communicate with. And, and so even if it didn't work out, and again, Bree and I were both doing avatars, but definitely did not work out in 1996. Um, you know, that's valuable. And then the other thing is, you know, work on some problem that you're really passionate about solving. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, at Stanford, like you were saying, I, I didn't want to follow an existing major. I just wanted to take certain classes and I talk to the professors and I find some... Can you tell them a little bit about your background, your education and well, how I was um, what you do? Yeah, I, um, you know, at Stanford, was, I think you still have it, right? The, the techie fuzzy line, you know, on campus and I... Uh, one of the first books they had us read was um, The Two Cultures or something like that and, and talked about techies and fuzzies. And um, so I always felt like, you know, and always say, like, you need people in between. And, and I felt I was kind of like want to be that person that likes to integrate it. And, but the majors in engineering, you have so many engineering courses, there's not a lot of room for it. And I was interested in psychology and social psychology. So, but I always tried to put those things together. So, you know, I, in, in the technical side, I focused on artificial intelligence. But I felt that child psychology was a perfect complement to that because, you know, here's how nature developed, you know, the intelligence in, in little kids. And it could be useful, you know, down the road when you have kids yourself to kind of see. We're in dealing with something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, there's a difference between theory and practice, too. <laughs> um, and so, so I just kind of put together the major like that. I had Jim Adams, who was the chair of the VTSS program, which is now, I guess, the STS program, um, as, my, as my advisor. And he was really, really kind. And... And I took a class from Gil Masters. I don't know if he still teaches. But he said, you know, you can do the same thing for the master's program. So great. So, so I basically had no department here for ne neither my bachelor's nor my master's. But I got to work kind of on the techie fuzzy divide. And, and everybody at Stanford was very supportive, saying, what a great background. That's what the world needs because these two cultures and, mm -hmm. you know, technologies create products people don't want. And the other people don't know how to use technology. 
But guess what? When you graduate first, there is no market for these great people. Like either you produce something, you're an engineer, or you know, I applied for a job at Apple and I said you have to have an MBA with two years of work experience. So, so even though I had this great background, had really good grades because I loved what I was doing, um, you know, it was a really hard time finding a job. So it really came down to you know finding some startup where the CEO liked me and and um, you know, and I took it for half the salary that I was getting anywhere else. But the CEO really liked me, and so he, he gave me all this responsibility so quickly, and the startup did pretty well. Uh -huh. um, so that was a good choice. So for startups, just you know, focus on a problem that you really want to solve and work with people that you really want to work with. And then if it succeeds or not, you'll, you'll still, it'll be a good experience. And, and I think you'll be better at it. I think if Reed and I were just, you know, we had, you know, I guess let's see where we're, you know, at least 10 years of work experience, and so we knew those kinds of problems. We weren't very close. So I think it's no accident that the median age of LinkedIn is kind of like Reed's and our age. You know, we're all 42, and that's the median age of LinkedIn. And, and I think Facebook, you know, was probably best invented by somebody who's in the student population. Right. Um, so, so, you know, try to pick something pick close to... Pick a market to, you know. Yeah, pick it. a market you know. That's ideal. It doesn't have to be. I have some friends who started something that they just researched, um, but they were passionate about that a pollution had to be found. Uh -huh. But if you know it, that's, that's a lot easier. Okay. Um, and work with people you like, and then that's, that's the key. In terms of marketing, definitely the quantitative on the Internet side, very important. Um, and, but also don't forget sort of the basics of marketing. I think, you know, it's like branding is, is as important or more important than ever because when you have so many choices on the Internet, so many websites, a lot of it comes down to brand. And that's really where I think most websites have. And currently I feel there's a little bit, there's a belief that, you know, the better product wins. If I have this product and it's better than the competition, the customers will find me and they'll tell their friends on the web and it'll happen. Um, but I actually don't think that's usually true. I, I certainly know we weren't the best product when we started. Um, I think the product wins that people see first. If they like the product, they'll use it. Um, and if they don't like the product, they won't try any product like that. Uh, we face that kind of with, with Plaxo. Mm -hmm. um, so so it's, it's really, can you be the product that consumers try first in your category. That meets their needs, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and if it doesn't meet their needs, yeah, so like you don't really have a second chance. Consumers just make those decisions very quickly. So, so think about the distribution as, as the hardest problem rather than just making a great product. There's so many great products on the web that just people have never even heard of. Uh -huh. And they will unfortunately die or have really small audiences of a few hundred or a thousand people. Um, because distribution is, is so hard. Um, most people just go to seven websites. So how are you going to become one of those seven websites? You've got to bump off Google or LinkedIn or Facebook or Wikipedia. You know, that's a tough job. So I know there are a lot of questions I haven't asked that many of you may have be dying to ask. So why don't we take some questions from the audience? Yes. Uh, yes, my name is Georgi with uh, Calsteris Entrepreneurship Association. Can you speak up a little bit? Uh, yes, my I, my two questions are: what was uh, what were the what was the essence of your uh, earliest biggest problems, whether technical or social? And um, have you used uh, some of the people who are not employed but had um, their profiles on LinkedIn to help you solve those problems? Well, the first okay. question I understand. The second, I may have to ask you for clarification. So, Can the, you the yeah. So the question was: was it more social or more technical problems at the beginning? And um, in some ways, the technology is really easy compared to, you know, what Reed and I were working on is 3D avatars in real times and having virtual pets and all the stuff, you know, real-time rendering and 3D graphics on, you know, i3386 processors. Um, you know, just the web stuff is not that hard. So um, now, of course, as you scale up, um, you know, it gets, it gets pretty hard when you have lots of users on it. And... You know, the one thing that was really technically hard with LinkedIn, and I don't, I don't think there's still no under the website that does it, and so there's a lot of kudos to our, our CTO, uh, Jean-Luc Vaillant, which is when you, when you see the search results, you can sort them by degrees of separation, so your first degree shows and then your second and third. So that whole graph is actually all kept in memory, um, and you can imagine how hard that is, you know, if it gets very large. Um, but he's, he's quite a wizard. So there are some hard technical problems, but I think it's mostly the, the social problems. And particularly, again, not using the site, but just 
just do people want to invite their contacts to it? You know, what, what do you do so they'll do it? Because the beginning is the hardest part. Now it's now that the brand is established, it's not so hard to convince people to invite others to LinkedIn. It's like, well, there's you know, almost 100 million people using it. So, and you can find these people and you can tap into that and there's customers. Um, but at the beginning, that's the hardest part. And I guess that's another thing for entrepreneurs. Often you think about once you have a million users, how great would your site be? But how do you get to that first million users? That, I think, is, is kind of the most, I, I call it the interesting challenge, but, but it can be, it is a, it's a real challenge. Now, the second question was about people looking for a job, something related to that. No, have you tapped into the resources that you have, uh, people with um, profiles in LinkedIn who are not employed but have the resources to help you so solve some of the problems to use those people? No, I mean, they were the ones, but one of the group, the yeah, so the question I think yeah. was, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, when people are looking for jobs, were they a resource we could tap into? And, um, and certainly, you know, the value of the network, people, we have sort of these three segments on, on LinkedIn. Um, main segment is kind of what we call relationship managers. And the main things they do on LinkedIn, and a lot of you probably find yourself, yeah, that's me, because it's the biggest segment, which is reconnect with old colleagues, stay in touch with them, um, have a place to put your profile in case a good opportunity comes along, and look up a person before a meeting. You know, those four value propositions. I mean, how many of you put yourself in, in that camp? You know, raise your hand. Are those the main things you do on LinkedIn? About 10%. Yeah, well, probably a lot of people are not raising their hands. <laughs> um, then we have networkers, and networkers are basically interested in, in, in building the network and meeting more people. You know, whereas the first group thinks of LinkedIn as their office. You know, the other ones think of it as a networking event. And you can think about how hard it is to have those two groups on the site together because the networkers, you know, come up to everyone and say, oh, hello, my name is Constantine. <laughs> and, and the other person in the office is like, why are you walking into my office? I was like, why are you on LinkedIn? You know, like, you're here to meet new people. And the person in the office says, security, security. <laughs> you know, someone get this crazy out of here. So we have these, you know, two segments that really don't work very well together. And then we have a group called, but they just did nothing wrong with them. They actually, they're nice people. They want to build relationships. And they know, they both know relationships matter, which is kind of one of the central models of LinkedIn. But one just wants to build them. The other one is happy with the relationships they have from working. Um, and then you have the third group we call the contactors, and those are people who, whose job entails um, finding people and contacting them. But they're not trying to build relations usually, they're just trying, it's a transaction, um, you know, whether they do due diligence for the financial service industry or recruitment or things like that. So, so these three groups. Now, unemployed people are, a lot of people are relationship managers. And when they're looking for a job, they become a networker <laughs> until they find a job. And then they go back to being a relationship manager. Um, and I, I really don't call them networkers because they're just doing it in order to get a job and then they're back in the other camp. So, so they do tend to be kind of more active than the, than the typical user. Uh, but we always um, you know, have to be very careful that one of the biggest risks we face from a branding perspective, because people understand the value of the network mostly in, in sort of, this is what I need when I, find a, when I need a job, or when I look to hire somebody, I need a network. So it becomes kind of like a monster.com type thing. And, and that's something we wanted to avoid, because people at the office do not feel comfortable logging into monster.com, right? Because that, that's not cool <laughs> if you're looking for a new job or you're paid for, for your work. And so we had to make sure that that didn't become the message. So it was kind of the crispest message, what people most easily understood, but we couldn't really communicate that because we didn't want people to have that message. Like one of the competitors we had, again, tons of funding, was a company called Jobster. You know, they said like Friendster is popular, and now it's the same thing for jobs. And I envy the VP marketing because, wow, what an easy job. You know, you exp this, is, this is so easy. You say what your site is for, it's to help jobs and to recruit people. But we knew they're kind of working themselves into a dead end where they just become another mini monster and that's not really changing the paradigm because the reason recruiters like LinkedIn is it's not the active job seekers that are looking for a job. So, so you have to you know, communicate that what you're doing is, is helping you on the job and, and that's a lot harder. Uh, how about a student? Can we have a student question? Yes? Yeah, hi. So how long it took you to get to one million users? And out of all the viral techniques you use, which one were you feel the most efficient to grow your community? 
Um, I don't remember. So I think it was. A little, let me just yeah, repeat think, the question yeah. for the people listening right. on the podcast. You're better at that. So, how long did it take you to get to one million users? And of the viral techniques you used, which were the most powerful? Which couple were maybe yeah, the most don't powerful? Don't hold me exactly, but I think it was somewhere around a year and a half, a year to a year and a half to get to a million users. And to be viral, you know, one of the things I encourage people to think about. I, I don't think there's sort of this secret to it, um, but just if you if you just really study the biology of it and just use that, that can be very helpful um, because you can draw your own analogies and you have to always be innovating you know, within virality as well because what worked then may not work anymore. Different populations react differently. Just different viruses exist, right? Some viruses are really lethal like Ebola and people were thinking that it's going to kill the whole world. But, but if a virus kills its host, then that reduces the spread of it. So if you have such a lethal virus that kills its host, that's kind of the zero degrees approach, right, where, where they killed the host. So, and, 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 and look at the, the cold virus, like what a wimpy little virus. But it can, it can infect so many more people. So, so think about, these are kind of conversion rates, right? Like is it, is it something that spreads to lots of people? You know, does it... Um, you know, how easy it is for people to get infected and so forth. So, um, yeah, if you really want to spread a cold, you go to a, a crowded place, right? Well, and you always need you, a host. You don't do it one, one individual at a time spread around in a very dispersed manner, but you go find chunks of people. Yeah, except you can't really find it. Like, it's not a top-down thing. It's like your virus finds its optimal targets, right? So the cold viruses just find little kids in kindergarten, you know, who, who don't have a strong immune system that put everything into their mouths, that kiss each other and, and all that stuff. And then, they get, and then they get the parents to their kids. Um, so anyone who has young kids, you probably you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, so the virus, you know, finds its optimal targets much better than you as the designer. But, um, for example, the, um, you always need a host. Like, there are no viruses without a host. And so one critical question is, what is your host that you're infecting? So, for example, for PayPal, the host was eBay. Um, for, for some companies, YouTube is the host. Uh, for some people, maybe Craigslist is the host. For us, Outlook was the main host. Um, you know, these days, a lot of companies want to use LinkedIn as the host <laughs> or, or Gmail or Hotmail or Facebook or, or, or something. So, so you always have to be clear. The host, one important thing is this has to has to have lots of users because then they're good hosts and kind of defenseless. Um, and the email providers were kind of good for that. Um, because, but you know, Facebook is not such a great host anymore. At the beginning they were, but now they've really clamped down and it's, it's not nearly as viral you know, as it used to be. Okay. How about another student? Yes, in the front um, here. If you were to say there are like any unique traits that distinguish your starting with five more so than any of the other startups you worked at, uh, what would you say were those traits? Be? So, what was the unique collection or combination of traits for your group of five versus other startups you've been involved in, or even others you've observed? What was special about that collection of people? Hmm. That's a good question. I am. Um... Did you guys were you alike, or did you complement each other? No, we're kind of alike. Um, I think we're all kind of careful thinkers, and. That probably for our demographic was good because, you know, a lot of people, you know, professionals are, you know, they don't have a lot of time and they're very sensitive about their contacts and the privacy and so forth and, and uptime. So, so you have to be, they're kind of fussy users. And so you have to be kind of a little more careful than just like, well, let's throw it out there and, because you may just lose them forever. So the good thing is, so the bad thing is our demographic has very little time and goes for utility. In the beginning, you have no utility, so it's kind of hard. Um, but, but they have money. Um, and then the younger demographics are often the opposite. They have a lot more time, a lot more willing to try things out, but lots less willing to spend money. So um, often you have a trade-off like that. Actually, when you come back to the viral marketing, a lot of it's, it's that virus, some viruses that infect lots of people are often not as strong. Um, but, but some viruses that you just spread to five or six people, but they're very compelling, then you have a stronger conversion rate. Um, on it, um, so it's um, you know it's these trade-offs. For your for your group of five, what what's different about the five of you that seem to be valuable 
anything? Uh, I'm not sure if that was the thing. Just all in life, are you all clones? <laughs> I, 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 I do think, you know, I mean, four of us went to Stanford. <laughs> but, but there are lots of Stanford startups. I'm not sure if this, you know, but we were passionate about the problem, and we thought really hard about the psychology and, and of it, of, of how these things, because they're complex systems, and... <laughs> you have just, you know, a few weeds, they can just take over, right? I mean, that's why you always have the problems in nature where these, you know, boats come from China with these barnacles attached and they, you know, threaten to wipe out the, the bay. Um, so if you have sort of something in your design that does that, and, and, and we saw the failures of, because we were not the first business networking site. There are sites like Rise and Academy and others, um, but we knew there are failures. And I think... Um, so people ask, well, what did you do right? And, and I'm not sure. I can tell you what all of our competition did wrong. I, I can give you a lot of good answers for that. So, so maybe part of it is just not screwing up. Um, you know, maybe that's, but that's not sure if that's true for all startups. Maybe that's just particularly important for our demographic. And maybe if you target college students, it's okay to screw up as long as you do other things. Okay, how about another question? Yes? about PR, you kind of <coughs> went over that, like, oh, we just sent the 20 biggest papers, the blurb, and they printed it, but it seems like it would be much harder than that to get their attention. So yeah. how did you get the, how did you get media, te media attention? Yeah, no, that's true. I, I didn't say it was that easy. I just said I got the papers and I got the article. Now, yeah, in Atlanta, nobody cares about this startup in Silicon Valley, you know, in 2003. Um, so we basically, you know, it was a local paper, so we had to have a local story. And so, so we basically pitched the paper and saying, because um, they always run articles about networking, how important it is for your career, and how people land this investor, and these kind of human interest stories. And we say, you know, how, you know, we have a story about two people where one person hired the other person over the internet. And, you know, would you be interested in covering that? Would you be interested in interviewing these two people that sort of doing this networking a new way? And, and it was a human interest story, you know, for two local people. And so usually they said yes. Now, my problem was I didn't have those two people. So I needed to find them really fast. So, so usually then, like, they didn't hear from me for a while. Well, I was busily using LinkedIn, looking at all the active users in Atlanta, you know, contacting them, asking them, you know, had they had any success on LinkedIn and, and trying to, you know, were they articulate, they could talk to the media and so forth. So, so, so I, I worked LinkedIn really hard to find those success stories. But it was always a human story. Um, about how somebody found an investor or somebody found a business. You know, we had a story, you know, like the French paper, you know, someone who is looking to sell uh, French wine to China. You know, it's just like a great story that they loved. Um, we just had to find the right person who, who did it. But they're all real stories. We didn't make up any stories. And there's a lot of work in that. So, for example, I remember, and sometimes you find interesting things when you do that. So, Philadelphia Inquirer was on our list. And so they said, yeah, we'll do a story. And I'm like, okay, now I've got to find somebody. And I looked in my network who are active users on, on, um, on, on LinkedIn. And it uh, turns out Josh Kopelman, you know, had a really – people know Josh Kopelman. He's like an angel investor from First Round Capital, really good guy. He started a company called Half.com. He got this city in Oregon to rename itself, Half.com. That's kind of his publicity stunt. <laughs> so, so Josh, you know, looked like he had lots of connections on it. So, and, and I looked at it, and I saw my friend Scott Rafer – who was also kind of Wharton alumni, was connected to him, and he introduced me, and I talked to Josh on the phone, and, and he said, yeah, I love LinkedIn, takes, you know, hours, saves me hours per day, because he basically invests in lots of little startups, and then and he's, he sells, like, well, I'm not just giving you money, I'm helping you with relationships, you know, if you need a customer, or uh, recruit people, or, you know, follow on investors, I'll help you, and he generally wants to help people, but it was just taking up most of his day. Um, so with LinkedIn, he just said, connect on LinkedIn, and then you search what you're looking for, you put your pitch together, and I'll just forward it if it makes sense. So he basically shifted all the work to his portfolio companies, and, but he was still adding value by making those introductions. So, so it worked really well for him. Um, so I asked to finally, you know, so I was getting very excited. Um, um, and he said, yeah, no, I only, um, I don't want to speak to the media about it. <laughs> so it's like a bummer. <laughs> um, but he ended up investing, so, so that's good. Oh, there you go. There you go. So we'll take one more. Well, we have time for maybe two more questions. Let's have one from the back over here somewhere. I see a hand up back there. Go ahead. Can you stand and ask your question? I, uh, you mentioned that how you prioritize features was 
something that would drive growth. How would you know if a feature was driving growth or something that would just increase user engagement? Oh, just relentless measuring. So the quote, do you want to do the question here? So how you distinguish between features that drove growth versus uh, drove engagement, increased engagement. Yeah, so one thing I think sometimes people confuse word of mouth with virality. People often think it's kind of the same thing, but it's very different. So word of mouth has, has always happened. It's like somebody loved, you know, your outfit and told their friends how great the outfit is. Or you saw some movie or played some games and you just told your friends about it. That's not virality. Because if you can't measure it, at least that's my definition, then it's not viral. Um, because you, what can you do about it? You just have to create some really great thing that people tell their friends about. But if that was so easy, <laughs> you wouldn't have a problem in the first place. So that's kind of like hits, like movies, you know, or, or songs all of a sudden become very popular. Or something on the, uh, you know, what's the new kid? They're like the 17-year-old with his mother who has like the top game on the iPhone. It's like you just cannot predict that. So that's not a good business strategy. That's called, you know, luck. Because most of the time it doesn't work on a regular basis. Which is why in the game industry you have the distributors that just buy companies or license sort of the, you know, let people do the experimenting and then they market the hits as a distribution channel. Virality is when you know for everybody who signs up which other member was responsible for, for, for that person signing up. So you can always trace it back. So you just track that in the database. And so, you, so we knew, you know, from day one, every day, what percentage of our members came, you know, were virally created where some other member, and we'd have the name of the person you know, who created that member for us um, in the record. And so, so we would know. Um, so we'd simply track. Um, you know, how, so it's not about, so basically if we did PR and we got a bunch of new signups, um, we basically discounted those signups because they don't really count in terms of driving virality. They just boosted us for a short period of time. But the only thing that counts is, is that ratio of new members and how many new members each one generates. And so, so you just simply track those numbers, and you do invest some, some effort into that tracking and analysis, um, and you do lots of ABC tests, and, and often you have to track pretty deep. So one of the disciplines that I think is helpful for virality is if you in direct marketing. Um, because again, because you, you, you do direct marketing is very much you know by the numbers, and so you look at your open rate, and you, know, all, you, you sort of track that funnel, except with virality, kind of, it's like the dog that bites itself in the tail. And, um, but if you just look at, I'm sending, a, you know, with this invitation text, more people click on it, um, you don't automatically go with that. Because maybe more people click on that, but maybe because there's different information in that, may, they may not be as likely as to invite. So sometimes you actually pick um, one of the texts that has a lower click-through rate or even a lower registration rate because they're more in, the ones it's sort of a different quality of user and the ones that that sign up are you know the fewer sign up but the ones who sign up invite more people in the end that's you know can be better so you simply track it and you focus on that metric and then engagement is something that obviously that was just for um, I mean it's still a big effort now but after so basically our plan was growth engagement revenue and but growth took much longer, so we had to go growth, revenue, <laughs> and then engagement. So, so that was kind of our plan, very simple. So, um, so it wasn't planned. We were planning to do engagement before revenue, but we had to do revenue first to survive, and then working on engagement now, and the company is still working on that. So let's take um, one more question, and how about somebody who has a, a question uh, related to how you apply some of this in a, a different model or different environment? Because you've been talking very much about, you know, a social media mm -hmm. or social networking type of business model. Mm -hmm. Does anybody have a question uh, related to how you'd apply this in a different kind of situation or some uh, advice in a different environment or situation? I'm, yes? I'm right now starting a video chat application based on how can I get viral growth? So how to get viral growth on a video chat application. That's not really... Different. That, yeah, yeah, it's not that different, but go ahead. Uh, I think we should stick to it. Stick to and, it. Okay, okay. <laughs> we can talk afterwards. <laughs> okay, yes, over here. If you like in the consumer electronics industry, how do, you boost the, how do you do the growth, engagement, and revenue and maybe like a, a consumer? So how would you apply the growth, engagement, revenue? And then I have a follow-up question to that. Growth, engagement, revenue uh, in a consumer product environment. 
I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's um, one reason I, I love the web stuff and I'm kind of committed to it is, is that you can track it so easily. But once you have intermediaries and stores, just a lot of the information gets garbled up. I mean, I started in software, you know, when we're shipping disks out to users. And we always have, you know, I mean, you always try to track it. So we have a registration card in and people fill it out and send it in. But I would always put on the registration cards, you know, like also the question, like, how did you hear about us? And I would usually put in one or two answers that were just couldn't be possible. Like, I knew we didn't do any billboard advertisement, but I made it an option. Or, um, you know, radio commercials. And, and always, like, 2 or 3% three, three of users would pick one of those choices. So 5% would pick something that was obviously not true. And so, so surveys, I think... They, they have their place, but if you're doing surveys where you're asking people to sort of uh, say what they would spend money on or if they would like it, I think often they're quite wrong. I think if I asked all my friends would use LinkedIn, you know, not, not, and I said, no, <laughs> don't do this. Um, but if you ask them more about what is your problem, they can just state sort of that problem and you go with that information. So, so I think in consumer electronics, you don't get that you know, because you can't use LinkedIn without telling us something. And, and, and we go more by, by what people click on rather than what they say they're going to click on. Um, and so you have that handicap with um, consumer electronics, but I think you still want to do surveys, but just make sure you stick close to, you know, what people are expert on, which is not, you know, what next feature do you want, but sort of the problems that you have and how you look at the world. And then it's your job as an entrepreneur to, you know, come up with solutions to that. The customers don't give you good solutions. You know, it's like, you know, you can ask people, would you have a dog that flies? And people say, well, that'd be pretty cool. But they may not think about, like, when they go to the bathroom, you know, what is that like when you take your dog for a walk and it flies and pees on different people? And, you know, it's all kinds of problems that consumers usually don't think about. Well, uh, with that, is there, do you have any other closing remarks? I think that's a great way to wrap this up. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Constantine, okay. and thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you very much. This concludes our podcast. If you are interested in listening to more Stanford podcasts of lectures and interviews featuring Silicon Valley thought leaders, please visit the Entrepreneurship Corner website provided by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program at ecorner.stanford.edu. That's ecorner.stanford.edu. This podcast was produced by Forrest Glick, Director of Educational Technology at the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. Visit our website to learn more at stvp.stanford.edu.